You're listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochchurch.sg. This is the story of the five wise and the five foolish virgins, or I want to refer to tonight as the story of the ten virgins, because they all had equal opportunity. Really, that basically is the whole message. That there were ten people, they were all virgins, and they were all in one place at one time. Before we get into that, though, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that our God is an equal opportunity God, and that His kingdom is an equal opportunity kingdom, by looking at Acts chapter 10, verse 33. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now we know from this passage of this story, most of you know what precedes this and what follows this. This is the story of God's change of the way he does things. Now, Jesus spoke about this new age of equal opportunity when he began to encounter Gentiles during his three and a half years of earthly ministry. During that time, he met Gentiles that surprised him. Uh, the centurion surprised him because of his ability to discern authority. The Syrophoenician woman surprised him because of her ability to, to insist by faith and receive something. So again and again, he even told stories about after he had those experiences later, you see him beginning to include in his parables many Gentiles, the Good Samaritan, for instance. And what he was trying to say is that resting on the laurels of your religious affiliation or what you have been in the past is not sufficient and it is also not necessary for you to gain approval with him because all are equal. It says in the last days he would pour his spirit out on all flesh. I like that he mentions the demographs, your sons and your daughters. It will pour out on your old and your young. So every man, woman, boy, child, regardless of their race, red and yellow, black and white, we used to say, all are precious in his sight. He gives equal opportunity. And Peter was one that was a bit stagnated in his perspectives or his view of culture. He could not easily accept. In fact, before this encounter, he had to be prepared by God supernaturally. Well, first of all, we know speaking here is Cornelius and the group that were gathered in his home. And they were, they were believers in God, but they were not part of the Jews. They were Gentiles. They believed in God. They believed in the story of Jesus. They heard about what Jesus had done. They were coming into that fold of sheep that Jesus spoke about when he said, I have another fold. I have another group, another sheep pen. And he was referring to the fact that there would be this movement that would later happen through the Apostle Paul when he went into the region of Galatia and did all he did. But here Peter was going through this transition. This is the story, of course, where he went up on the roof when he was hungry and he fell asleep or fell into a trance. And the Lord gave him a vision of what appeared to be a sheet uh, suspended from its four corners, lowered down in front of him. And it was full of all kinds of animals, but especially full of unclean 
animals that Peter was not allowed to eat. I'll give you some examples. In the net was a pig. In the net was a crab. In the net was a rabbit. In the net were things that he could not eat by law, that we can eat and enjoy. I mean, thank God. Just the other day, uh, yesterday, I had the most amazing pig trotter. It was so delicious, and the meat just melted in my mouth. And I often think of that story where it says that he told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And he said, I cannot do that from the time I was a boy. I've never eaten anything unclean. And God corrected him and said, well, don't call unclean what I call clean. And he had to do this a few times to get past Peter's uh, mental obstacle and his inability to accept this, but finally convinced Peter, where he said, do not call unclean what I call clean. I say you can eat the pig and the crab and the rabbit and all these things and rise, kill, and eat. And Peter finally accepted this and he said this having made all meats clean. Right then he comes out of that trance, wakes up and there's a knock downstairs and Cornelius had sent men based upon the fact that an angel had come and told Cornelius, go send for Peter, for Simon Peter. He's staying at Simon the Tanner's house. And so they went by a divine appointment or give the word of knowledge delivered to an angel. They went and found Peter. And Peter was not surprised so much that they came because of what he just saw in the vision. So with that, he was compliant and went and come to the house and before this even, the first thing he said walking into the house is, you know this is illegal, right? First thing out of his mouth. Because this was a whole new era, new day. We talk about it a lot here at Antioch because we are Antioch and because we see Gentiles and the need to reach. But Cornelius says, well, when all this happened, I sent for you immediately when the angel said this. And it's good that you've come. Thanks for coming. Now, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. And this is the wonderful thing that we learned from this is that Peter had a lesson to learn. He learned it, that God changed in this dispensation and became one who offers equal opportunities to everyone. There's no, it does not matter what your background is. It doesn't matter uh, what your heritage is. It doesn't matter what your criminal history may be. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or your culture or your lack of education or any of those things. God could care less about the dictated standards of man when it comes to functioning in his kingdom. Across the board, he accepts everyone. Across the board, the least can be the greatest. And in fact, that's exactly what he said. I see people come into the kingdom who have no proper upbringing, no proper education, no credentials, no heritage, no honor, not many wise, not many noble, Paul said, respond to that call. When they come in, he can become something wonderful through them. In fact, because God does not have to deal with the impediment of human pride, because of the already existing humility in one that does not see themselves as great, God can do so much more. So in our weakness, he becomes strong, all based upon this principle of equal opportunity. So we're going to see seven things about equal opportunity in the kingdom that I found as I read the parable or the story of the ten virgins. Amen. How many of you want to hear this message? Good. Let's begin. Number one. 
the kingdom of heaven is a place of equal opportunity. Now, we've been talking about that already, but I want to show it to you in the story. Matthew 25, 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So now the story begins. At this point, we see, in essence, a social grouping, a homogeneous group of people referred to as virgins. They're all equally qualified as virgins. They're not some percentage of virginity here. They're all equal. They're all in the same playing field as virgins. So therefore, all eligible for what? To marry the bridegroom. If they were not virgins, they could not. But they're all eligible. They all have the same rights, privileges, opportunities. The door is equal to them all. And I see this when we, in, the, in this analogy, we are the virgins. All of us. So the virgin represents the believer in Christ. When someone comes into the kingdom of God, receives the atonement and the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, washed in the blood, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life, you're born into the body of Christ, now you have every right and privilege and everything is afforded you, every opportunity is given to you. Because within this paradigm we know that since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom allows violent behavior, the violent take it by force, so really it's what you do. It's what you decide to pursue, what you decide to become in Christ. God does not draw the line or set the limits. Equal opportunity. Everybody has that chance. If you subscribe to the erroneous theory of elitism in the kingdom of God, then you miss the point of the kingdom entirely. If you think, well, because this person is special, they will become this or become that, you're wrong. In fact, in my history in ministry, I've seen people come and go. I've seen very noble, very beautiful, very educated and wonderful people, even in my Bible school, that I felt extremely inferior next to because they were just so much better, better looking, better smelling. They had better clothes. They had cars. They had things. They were rich. They come from rich families with long histories of prestige and honor. I mean, important people. And strangely, in the church, everybody noticed that. And it seems like amongst humans, they paid a greater emphasis on those people because they were. And that's what John had a problem with, or James had a problem with, when he wrote to the churches and said, if a rich man comes into your congregation, don't show favoritism and give him the special seat and put the poor guy in the back. Let everyone be treated equal in the church. Everyone be treated equal in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of heaven is a place of equal opportunity. Should not be any limitation whatsoever based upon you as a male or a female, as young or old, as Indian, Chinese, uh, Anglo, whatever your background is, whatever your upbringing. In this room right now, all of you probably, in fact, I can say, definitively looking at it, you possess a greater degree of purity in your ethnicity than I do. Because I can count 11 that I know, nations in my past. I am a hybrid. So technically, because this is something that people place importance upon in this world. Is it not true that they're pure-blooded, aristocratic, this one is only from this lineage in the family line was not broken. And in fact, in the Old Testament, that was also valued to think, well, the lineage of Christ, the lineage of the people before, but now we live in a dispensation of spirit, not of flesh. Things change. 
And it's amazing that someone with such low credentials like myself would be afforded the opportunities I've achieved and accepted and have lived things in the kingdom that many of my superior contemporaries have not reached. They were better. They had more in their favor. They had, in fact, greater doors opening to them in the natural. And they took it, I believe, often for granted. They just accepted it and were happy because they had these certain perks and privileges to being what they were. I had to fight for it. I had to struggle for it because I was the poor kid from the poor neighborhood, the poorest kid in my church. I was the kid that didn't have the education and spent three years in eighth grade, dropped out in ninth. They knew that I had been involved in illicit activities as a minor and that I got into trouble. They knew my history. And sure enough, when I would sit at the church, certain people would protect their pocketbooks and they knew that I potentially could end up taking something. I was that. And they did not judge me. They just put me in that category. So when God began to speak to me and began to tell me that he was a God of equal opportunities, which, by the way, my entire ministry is built upon this principle, that I decided, well, if God's no respecter of persons, then I can disguise the limit. It all depends upon me. What I need to do to be able to assert myself in a way that is not the 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 avarice of man, but the humility and submission. And this is where he began to teach me more. God is always offering people his association and blessing. In fact, he wants every single man, woman, boy, and child to be with him, to grow close to him, to do great exploits in his name. And that is when you come into the house of God, everybody is equal. There's nothing that I can do that you can't do. And there's nothing that you can do that I can do in a spiritual context. I can do it if I want to do it. I just need to do certain things. So this is where we start this parable seeing that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps. They have lamps. They go out to meet the bridegroom. They're all eligible. And believe me, if they had all done the same thing, there would be ten brides with this bridegroom. But we know in the story that things change, and I'll tell you why they change, because number two, we have a choice. I often wish we didn't. I often wish that God would just circumvent our choices. Wouldn't life be a lot easier if he just took us and said, no, I'll do it my way, you have no choice, and gosh, we of course could do the perfect will of God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, four, four weeks a month. You know, we would be always fulfilling the purposes of God without flaw or error. But where is the adoration in that? Where is the reward to the Creator? There is none. Then we just become a mindless pawn in His hands. There's no, of course we have to obey. Because that's just that's the way it is. No, we have a choice. And that's how we honor God. So these virgins all have choices about life. What they will do, how they will do it. Five of the virgins did something different. It says five of them were foolish and five were wise. So they are split right down the middle. Half are wise, half are foolish. We have people in this room tonight. This is not something arbitrarily chosen by God. You understand? Uh, God isn't looking at the, the church like I look at what we are here tonight. Let's just say I draw a line right there. And everybody on this side, I dub wise. And everybody on this side, you are now foolish. Because I, as a sovereign God, have decided. No, God does not do that. 
But it could be, if you consider virgins or those on their way to get married, like all of us, this is a scary parable. Because that means is half of us have the potential of doing or not doing something that will put us in either of these categories by our choice. It is not their destiny to be foolish and these be wise. It's just choices they've made. And that's where it's so important to focus on this fact. They had a choice to make earlier, actually, before this moment. In fact, at the telling of this story in the narrative, the choices have already been made. And this is what plays out in the story. Five of them were foolish. In other words, they already made poor choices. And five of them had already made wise choices. But the story centers around the moment when it matters. So that when we see the results of foolish choices and wise choices, we will know how to adequately prepare ourselves for that moment that could be tomorrow, as we said a moment ago, or it could be ten years from now, we're not sure, but we should be prepared, always be wise, make the choice. So inherently they are all equal here, but yet we see categorically they fall into these, div these divisions of two sides. It kind of reminds me of the parable of the sheep and the goats. In the end, it says that, that when the harvest comes, that the Lord will be like a shepherd that gathers all of the sheep and the goats together and he divides them up and he puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he says to the sheep, well done, my good and faithful servants, enter into the joy of the Lord. And then he even goes on to tell them, because you're, you're welcome, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you took care of me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they're shocked, living in ignorance about how could that be. Certainly, we would have remembered if you had been naked and we clothed you, or God, if you were hungry. And I, I don't recall that. And that's when he said, well, whatever you do to the least of these, your brothers and your sisters, you do it to me. So in taking care of them, the things you did for them is what caused you to have this place with me. And he said to the goats just the opposite. Depart from me, you wicked goats. Because you did wrong. Because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. You didn't come visit me. You left me to rot in prison. They were like, when did we do that? We don't remember you being in prison. Well, you know what? Whatever you did not do to the least of these, your brothers, you did not do. For me, So we saw that God takes things very seriously. In fact, today I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and he wanted to know, he kind of felt uh, that, uh, like many believers do, I met someone actually just recently in Cambodia as well that had the same feeling that they're not really connecting with God. That they feel like they're not, be, they're not able to love God the way they see other people love God. And how they qualify loving God really has more to do with the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their minds. Now give, give me a second, I'm going to qualify my point. That they believe, well, if they see people interacting with God in such a way that they're crying and falling the experience because they don't feel that, they feel like, well, I'm not loving God enough. And actually, that's an erroneous thought. Because biblically, there's nothing that says... When, when you prayed to me, or when you worshipped me, he said, when you fed me, when you clothed me, when you visited me, whatever you did to these people around you, remember what 
Remember what John said in his letter to the church, or one of the letters, the first letter he read to the church, when he said, you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, it makes you a liar. Because you cannot love God without loving your brother. And so he qualified that. That's what we do. So this person today that I was talking to felt bad. That I just never connected like I see you connect, this, that, and the other. I said, and I started naming all that, that they had done for people. I said, haven't you done that? I said, well, then that's, that is love for God. That is love for God. Sure, I hope you have the kind of experiences and the intimacy, the private moments in my prayer that I expect. I hope everyone has that. But guess what? Biblically, I do not see it as a necessary prerequisite for you getting all the rewards that you need in eternity. And that's important to balance some of our doctrines and our ideas out about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is just as powerfully working through someone that feels a burden to constantly clothe and feed and take care of and visit people. They don't really fit in the worship too well. They can't quite connect. But guess what? If you sit there all day and you worship, hallelujah, praise the Lord, tears streaming down your face, and every service you're falling on the ground, rolling around, saliva coming out your mouth, hallelujah, great, and you don't do something for people, that does not carry any weight in eternity. And so it's, a, it's kind of a wake-up call for us to start making sure we're doing something to love people because ultimately, and really one thing is not related to the other. Our intimacy with God directly should be there. But I'll tell you something, if you really meet the Jesus that I know and serve and the one that we read his words about, you know that in that place of worship he will always compel you to feed, clothe, serve people. He'll always, his presence always drives you out to reach and love people. So here we see they had a choice. We all have choices in life. We decide our future by the choices of today. The choices you make today will dictate the outcome of your future as you go. And every person has the ability to choose. And just like these virgins in the story, the choices that we make will also drastically affect our relationship with God and the long term. So now let's go to number three. <coughs> Foolishness is marked by a lack of preparation. It says in verse three, the foolish ones, virgins, took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. Now I want to think a little bit about this. It says they did not take oil. Now of course they had some oil, but they did not take oil with them the lamps. So they had no extra oil, you could say. They did not make provision for the future. They're a bit short-sighted. They're thinking, well, we're going to go, we have our lamps, and probably within that vessel, the lamp actually was made of pottery. Usually, it's like a dish. And on that dish, it came to a spout where you had a piece of uh, like rope or wick material that wicked the oil up through it and you could light it. When you lit it, it would act as a fuel and the wick would burn and slowly draw the oil up through the wick to continue burning. Every once in a while you'd have to reposition the wick a little bit because the wick would slowly be consumed, but mostly it was channeling oil as a fuel to be burned. So within that little oil lamp, you probably maybe had about three, four hours of lamp power with fire to light. So that's okay, but that's a short term. And this is one of the things I notice about the foolish. They are short-sighted. They're looking at now. 
They're worried about this moment. They're worried about the immediate, and they're not thinking enough about the long term. They're not thinking enough about what happens when the now comes to an end. What happens when the oil in that lamp runs out? And so they did not take extra oil, and the lamp alone was only partial preparation for the short term. I see in this that really the lamp is like what we inherently are. We are a temple of God. We have God's power, and we can burn for Him. We can burn for Him. But we have limitations. We have limitations. In fact, later in this story, you're going to see that all ten of them had limitations. And we all have limitations. But they did not carry with them anything to replenish or replace what naturally was in them. Now I want you to keep that in mind. Right now we're talking about this preparation because we saw that foolishness is marked by a lack of preparation. So as we walk the path of life, God teaches us to prepare today for tomorrow is going to be a test. We have a test coming. In fact, every day is a test. I mean, we've ever taken exams. Oh, everybody, Singapore, that's like a dirty word. You say exam, every face turns white. Don't say that word. Exam, and it's hard. Exam happens to be a four-letter word. So everybody is afraid of the exam. And now you know in an exam, the outcome of that exam depends entirely upon you and your preparation. And the guy that puts off studying the guy that just said he wants to prefers to go see the movie, and he prefers to watch his TV show, and he prefers to sleep, and he's not really studying. He, he'll cram at the very end. You know how that is. And just like 24 hours, you don't sleep for like 36 hours before the exam. You cram it all in there, and subsequently your results are not all that great. But then there's the other guy that spends a lot of time studying carefully, diligently, in fact, I have experienced this myself in when I studied for my aviation exam. There was the knowledge part. We had the practical and the, the knowledge test. The knowledge was based on a book called the Far Aim Manual. And the, and the Far Aim was the FAA's laws for aviation, the Federal Aviation Administration. And by the way, those laws cover the globe, not just America. Just happens to have been written in America because that's where Kitty Hawk was and where the first planes took off. So the industry grew. It's also why air traffic controllers anywhere on the planet have to speak English because it's the universal language of, of aviation, especially commercial aviation. That book is that thick. It was a paper book that big, that thick. Every one of the laws of the Federal Aviation Administration. This is how the exam works. You go in and randomly selected from different points in all of those laws, the test will be given to you. And every test is different. Generated by a computer now that just randomly pulls obscure laws, the ones you don't think, how can this be important? Those are the ones that are going to be on the exam. You don't think so, but they are. So I was told this by my instructors. I seriously studied. When I was preparing to do the knowledge test, I made the appointment and I knew that I had a few weeks before the time I was going to have to... I studied seriously 15 hours a day for two and a half to three weeks. I, I was not playing games. I mean, I memorized the whole book. Memorized it. Studied 
painfully. I had sores on my head, on my feet, because I kept, you know when you really study hard, you start scratching yourself and you're, you feel itchy and man, I literally I would have blood under my fingernails. I mean, I drove myself to mental anguish in study. But I learned that book and I would have my wife test me, my friends test me, pilot friends of mine test me, ask me something, ask me something. All right, you're flying into a class B airspace and you don't have a boat C transponder, what's the protocol? That's easy, you have to immediately call Tyler, but before that, if you contact center on the appropriate frequency that is listed on your map, on your aviation chart, you call them and you, I knew it, I knew exactly everything, and little tiny things. Okay, what's the maximum velocity of your Cessna 152 with full flaps extended coming in for a short field landing at a, you know, give you the demand, how many feet will it take for your plane to come to a stop at an elevation of 4,000 meters because the elevation drastically changes. The elevation at 4,000 meters versus sea level, you have, to, you have two times, more than two times the length necessary for both takeoff and landing. These are all the things in that big old white book. And all those laws were made by death. In other words, every time somebody died, they made a new law. So it is a memorial of thousands of dead pilots. That's what my instructor told me. And then when he told me that, oh, I need to learn these. He says, so how he presented this, he says, this is your guard against death. You don't know this, you can die, because all the people, these laws were made for people who die. So I studied so hard. Now, when the exam time came, I was scared, I was nervous. I went in, they put the computer-generated test in front of me, and I started to take it, and the first question, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, check. I knew it, instantly I knew it. Next question, I knew that. I knew it. It was beautiful. Like seven, eight questions. It was only like one out of 50 questions that I thought, hmm. And then I had to really think about it. And, oh, oh, and then it occurred to me. Now, it's interesting because when I went to take the test, I had some people in the room with me, other pilots, that would go at the same time, same session, under the FAA jurisdiction or in the office, and they watched these people who take the test. This guy was next to me. He was not prepared. He did not take any oil with him at all. I mean, he, he did not study, obviously. And he was freaking out. Like, by the third question, he was like, <sighs> he's like looking at me. And I'm like, uh, uh, dude, I don't, uh, I'm taking a test here, all right? I wasn't going to risk being disqualified. You, you got, that's your thing, that's your problem. I think about unpreparedness. Uh, I'll give you another example, uh, like a laptop computer. Did you ever have a laptop and support and you need it for something that you're doing and you take it with you on a trip but you forget the charger and all? And you watch that, that, that bar with, the, with the, the percentage of battery shrinking and shrinking and you're working faster and faster and you see it and you turn it off and praying as if that's going to make a difference. I was talking to somebody today about that. You know what? God does not care about electronics. I found that God really doesn't care about technology. That's between us and earth. He, he has never blessed my devices. I have prayed. I have prayed for computers and phones for the battery to last. No, God's like, well, you should have brought your charger, dummy. And because that's the way God is practical about those things, I'm sure he could, but by and large, he won't. 
And you know, you're on that trip and you run out and it's horrible and you, you have to close it, you know, it's got 1% left. You ever have 1% and you just need one more thing and you, yeah. and you open it and turn it on and it comes on and you, and you hurry and it, and it dies. Who's to blame? You get mad at the computer. See, that's really dumb. Like the computer forgot its charger. So, you know, this is the same thing that we see with these the bottom line is the point is foolishness is marked by a lack of preparation. You should have brought your charger with you. You should have studied for the exam. That's very simple. Now we go, as we continue on, number four. Wisdom is marked by the possession of oil. That's pretty simple. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. Now this is interesting. Remember that we inherently are the lamp. We burn for God. But what are these jars. Well, the jar was a container. The average jar or cruise, they called it, of oil. For the purpose of refilling lamps, it carried approximately ten times the amount of oil that the lamp would carry. So if that lamp would yield, let's minimize it to three hours, you're talking thirty hours of fuel to have light. That easily, in other words, that jar, easily, if they would wait all night long, they'd have their lamps. And just add a little oil, keep it burning. Add a little oil, keep it burning. But that jar is kept to the side. So I really started thinking about this. And because they took oil in their jars, besides the oil that was already in their lamps, they had an abundance of fuel to last. That's smart. Why? Because they had calculated the amount necessary to last through the entire night. They figured it out. They did the math. They knew how much. And they knew, let's just say, that maybe the, the foolish virgins just decide, well, certainly the bridegroom will come probably around dusk. We may need the lamps for a little while. It's good enough. Well, these wise virgins didn't take the chance. They wanted to be ready for the worst. I'm gonna, if he doesn't come all night, at least until the break of day, we have the dawn, but I'm going to have enough oil to burn through the whole night. And that was their philosophy. And so I started thinking about oil. Oil is fuel. Fuel is needed to continue to burn the lamp through the dark night. What does oil represent for us? Well, we know I looked at the over 200 uses, about 224 uses of the word oil throughout the Bible, greatest concentration of which is in the book of Exodus, where 75% of those usages apply to the anointing oil. So we see clearly that oil in a parable that Jesus would mention, you can think of this as God's Spirit. But God's Spirit is manifesting on earth in different dimensions. I see it both as His Word and His power. And this is really what Jesus taught us too. Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? You hear me often talk about this. But that really is what it all comes down to. You need a balance of these two things, word and power. I see really this combination as the oil, exactly as it should be, to burn. His word burns, his 
Word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. His power is an all-consuming fire. It, it relates to this idea. And for me, that's always the way it has been. In my early Christian life, I decided and I knew and projected and I really believe I fall into the wise virgin category because I look forward in my life knowing that I have to serve God around the world. I want to be ready for that. I don't want to get out there and not know the Bible. So, Bible school and personal stuff. Actually, Bible school makes a very small part of what I got out of the Bible. A large portion comes from me systematically reading the whole Bible through for more than 20 years, all the way through, all the way through, all the way through. I don't realize how much I have. And of course, I cannot use that knowledge at all times. How can I possibly use the sum total of the biblical knowledge I have tonight in this meeting? It's not possible. Because I'm only going to burn my lamp right now. What The oil I have in me in preparation for this message is the word that we're concentrating on right now. So I light it on fire. In the light of Revelation, I teach this parable. But guess what? In a jar next to me, I have the entire Bible. And if you press me to know who Michael was, I can answer you. If you want to know what, what, um, what Phinehas did, I can tell you the whole story in detail. In fact, I was surprised. One, one thing that showed me I was on the right track and my jar was full, the word jar, because I see word jar and power jar. The word jar was full. Somebody asked me, we were on a trip uh, driving and we had, it was like a five-hour journey. And they asked, so can you, and they actually asked, nobody had ever asked me this, can you kind of like put, put, the book of Genesis into simple words and just tell me the story. And I said, okay, I'll try. And four hours later, I had told them literally every single chapter, maybe not exactly as it's written, but talking, I could tell the story in my own words about everything that happened. And I found myself so excited because I could just keep dipping down into this jar of acquired knowledge that took me decades Decades to fill that jar. But when needed and somebody pressed me, I could be a workman not being ashamed, able to rightly divide the word of truth. I felt so proud of God, not myself. Proud of God's word, the availability of it, that he is an equal opportunity God and that everybody has the word at their disposal. We're not living in the dark ages where they kept it in a foreign language and refuse to translate it into your language. We have like 20, 30 available translations in English alone on our phones. If you don't have a jar full of God's Word, it is not God's fault. More than ever before, it's your fault. Keep filling that jar. It will save your life. You need that jar because dark times are coming. The night is coming. You will be pressed. You will be pushed into unique circumstances. And Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he told them, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And so you see the balance. I see the power as the oil like the anointing that we do receive when we worship him in intimacy with him. The glory of God comes upon us. He begins to saturate our being. He begins to fill us with his preciousness. The, the thing that goes beyond the natural tangibility, the supernatural component of his spirit, the very real anointing, even speaking about it, I feel heaven's oil coming over me. That oil, I cannot possibly use it constantly, but I can 
gather up enough in a moment. Actually, that's what I do with the core. That's what I do in the program. I gather people to listen, and God's Spirit comes with such power and fills the students. They feel so good. In the next class, I do it again. And they think, ah, oh, not again. The third class, I do it again. We do it again and again and again. By the end of the program, the students just come in and they just lay on the floor because they, why, why fight it? Just Stephen's going to bathe us in the oil again. Why? Because I'm wanting you to have a jar of oil. I know it's more than you can. You get filled, you feel full. Your cup is overflowing. Hallelujah. Why then do I keep praying for you? More, 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 more. And you're like writhing on the ground. Why is he doing this to me? He's torturing me. I do it to Caleb all the time. I like to watch him <laughs> roll around. Well, when I do that, it's because Caleb, sometimes future is going to have to walk through dark places. And his lamp is going to run out of oil and he's going to have a reserve. Oh, I remember. Because the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. If he gives you the anointing, ha! Ha, 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 ha! If he gives you the power, ha, 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 you have it forever. And you can use it when you need it. Fill the jar oil. It's not enough just to fill your lamp. Fill the jar. Fill the jar. <laughs> I've got my 20 jars. I'll gladly take another jar. Just give me more of heaven's oil. The word is a foundation, but then also the oil, the sweet, viscous oil, the warm oil of God, let it be on us. Give us an abundance so that we'll be ready when the night comes. We won't be afraid of our lamp burning, huh? We will have it. We will carry it. Because guess what? We all will be tested. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. They all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And all the virgins, all ten of them, woke up and trimmed their lamps. Now you see, everyone else will have to face the same process in life. Look at these elemental things that happen here. Um, they all, the next frame please. They all had to be patient. Where it says they're very clear, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. This is something that I see often missing, and this is one of the distinguishing factors between the wise and the unwise. Unwise are just very impatient. They just don't have the patience. How long are we going to have to pray? How long is the service going to go on? Is he going to keep worshiping? How long is this message? Always. No, sometimes things take longer to happen. Be patient. Learn how to be patient with God's presence. Patient with his word. Patient with how he responds to you. Just keep on going. They all had to be patient. He wasn't a long time coming just for the foolish girls. He was a long time coming for all ten. Because we're all going to go through it. We're all going to be tested. They all became sleepy. Why? Because they were not supernatural virgins that don't need sleep. They were all normal human beings. Wise or foolish, people need to sleep. And so they grew sleepy. You grow weary. You grow tired, especially in well-doing. You bless people, you love people, but you get tired. And that is part of the test of life. They all fell asleep. You understand? 
They fell asleep. In other words, they all, if, if sleep were the issue, if sleepiness were the issue, the distinguishing factor that causes someone to be disqualified from marrying our, our beautiful bridegroom, Jesus, then none of us would get married. But he knows we... His own disciples fell asleep on him in Gethsemane. He said, couldn't you just hang out for an hour? Gosh, wake up. Who woke them up angry? Because they went, why? Because they just naturally... We're, we're humans. God knows our weaknesses. He knows we're human. So technically... None of these things distinguish the wise from the unwise. They're all fallen asleep. And they all heard the same call. When he came, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. The call was made. All ten heard it. We all hear the call of God. So hearing the call is not what differentiates wise from unwise. Falling asleep, weakness, that does not matter to God. He, in fact, in your weakness, he can be strong. They, patience, we all have to be patient. We see that. They heard the call. And finally, they all trim their lamps because we are all given an equal playing field. So here clearly, we see that we all go through this test, but a fact, an absolute fact, is number six. Each is responsible for their own future. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. That day I was taking my exam. That guy kept asking me for answers. And they had an, a, an observer, an FAA certified um, observer that was watching over us when we took the kid, let people cheat. He was watching, and that guy kept looking at, hey, what? at an elevation of 8,000 feet, what happened? Shh! I just kept shushing him. No, no, go get your own oil. You know, I didn't want to risk. What I had, I paid the price for my knowledge, and I could jeopardize that by giving him an answer. I could maybe help him, I'd be a good guy, he'd love me forever, but also it set him up to be able to be another one of the statistics of dead pilots. So I'm not doing him any favors by helping him get through cheating, I had to just, no, I had to block him off. I almost called the um, observer and said, tell this guy to stop asking me questions. I just I put my, I kept putting my hand up like this. Uh, no. No. Go back to the far aim. In it is all the knowledge you need. Go back. That's like, go find where they have oil. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. For yourself. You want oil? It's between you and God in the oil. You go get it for yourself. This is one thing I found out about the anointing. And one thing I found out about Bible knowledge. You cannot hold any other human being responsible for whether you have it or not. Because it is an equal playing field and he's an equal opportunity. God, his spirit is for all and his word is for all. It all depends upon you. And that guy should have studied. I did study. Which, by the way, when I got my results to the exam, I was quite disappointed. I only got a 97%. And I was, I was sad. And I went back, because I wanted the 100. And I went back um, to my instructor. And he said, how'd you do? And I handed him the paper. And he went, wow. He says, this is awesome. And I said, yeah, I missed one. And he says, no, 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 you don't understand. And he showed me statistics. I was in the top 1% of pilots in the nation. The top 1%, that's how hard I studied. 
that for you, almost nobody gets 100%. The test is hardwired to have something in there to make it almost impossible. It's like it's a fraction of 1%. In fact, the test is so hard, you can pass at 59%. That's how hard the test is. You will pass with 59%, and they'll just say study more, but yeah, you can get your license. But I got 97%. Why? Because I had oil. I carried the oil in there. All of the knowledge, although the test was just a very small percentage of the knowledge that I would need in that moment, I had enough of the knowledge. Same thing we see. Each is responsible for their own future. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Just shut. When we were in the United States some time back, I took Ann with me, and uh, Ann got up and preached to a room full of women in a women's ministry. And, you know, they looked at Ann like a little Asian girl, you know, not knowing the depths and the knowledge that she had. And she played it perfect. She was a master. She's like, hi, little Asian girl. Ho, ho, ho. And, she, and so they all, oh, she's so sweet. And she just, she did, she played that role. If you think, okay, because she's humble. And she, gosh, she, she shared this passage. That's the one they did it, right? She shared this passage. And I'll never forget what she said about that door. She said, the bottom line is that when that door shuts, it all depends on which side of the door you find yourself. Either you know, and all those women were like, frozen, and the power of God filled the place. I was like, a preacher. Each is responsible for their own future. So in the hour of testing, the truth would be revealed. Five of the virgins did not make proper provision for this moment, and their lamps ran out of fuel. They tried to get help from the wise virgins. The wise virgins were going to jeopardize what they had done. And, and I never jeopardize your Bible knowledge and your association with the Spirit of God for somebody else. You hang on to that. You, if they are not doing what you are doing, leave them in the dust. You go on and continue to do what you know is right. You have a friend, oh, let's not go to church. Let's just, we should just go out and do this. It's okay if we miss that. So, no, you say, you go. I'm going to get oil. I'm going to get oil. This is I'm an oil salesman. You can get it from me. You can get it from me now. Later, if you come to get it from me uh, and you look, you come here and say, you know, the rapture comes and Jesus is taking all people off the earth and you come to church looking for me. Well, guess what? I'm raptured. I won't even be here. Because I have my oil. It's up to you. They could only advise them to go buy more, but of course, what happened was really sad. Every soul is dependent upon itself to prepare for the spiritual future. We cannot depend upon another person to make us get ready. As a pastor, I plead with people all the time, get ready, get ready, learn, study the Word. Did you read your Bible? Did you read your Bible? Did you pray? Make sure that you get all the oil you can because number seven, and this is the last point, the unwise will become the unknown. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. You know, I think they thought that he would. I think they thought, well, certainly we we are also, we're, we're eligible. Well, everybody had an equal right. In fact, that's why we were here. We were waiting. 
Certainly, it's just a mistake. Yeah, it's a mistake. I think he didn't realize. So we'll just, we'll just, Lord, Lord, it's us. Come on, open up the door. But his response is so cold. He replied, "Truly, I tell you, I don't know you." Now. In a moment, we're going to cover the last thing there that Jesus says, but this is still within the narrative of the parable. Truly, I tell you, I don't know you because the unwise, because of those mistakes that they made, will become the unknown. And it's not because they fell asleep. It's not because they're tired. It's not because they're ugly or pretty. There's no mention of five ugly and five beautiful virgins. It's wise and unwise, and that wisdom or lack thereof is dependent upon one thing and one thing only, and that is oil. And that is the acquisition of that oil in time. When did they get it? When? They got it beforehand. They were well prepared. Be prepared. And that's where Jesus, he basically gives the primer of the, of the, for the whole narrative, he tells you the lesson. He says, therefore, the moral lesson here is keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Never know when he's going to come, what's going to happen. The foolish versions went to get it and they were, they were locked out. Keeping watch means to simply be prepared at all times by having sufficiency of what matters. Gather your oil. The only difference between the wise and the unwise is very simply uh, the quantity of oil. Just the quantity. They all had oil even. To every man is given a measure of the Spirit. So we have a measure of faith. We have a measure of the Spirit. To everyone is given the Holy Spirit, it says. But there's more to it than that. And that's where I really believe he's talking about. His Word, His resources. Things that we can acquire that are within our grasp and our reach. The kingdom taken by force. Take the work by force. Take the anointing by force. The Spirit of God. Amen? These seven things about equal opportunity in the kingdom. We saw, number one, the kingdom of heaven is a place of equal opportunity. It is. That's the way the kingdom works. Number two, we have a choice. It's up to you. Whatever you want from God. Number three, foolishness is marked by a lack of preparation. So that means we need to prepare ourselves. We need to always be ready. Wisdom is marked by the possession of oil. So really, in this parable, all you need to do to be qualified as acceptable to Jesus for marriage is have oil. Just find the oil before the time comes. Before the, the Lord comes and returns. It could be soon. In the meantime, the, today you should be collecting oil. Tomorrow you should make a plan. I need more oil. How can I get more oil tomorrow? Well, I'm going to wake up. The first thing I'm going to do is say, Good morning, Jesus. And I'm going to go to the Word of God. And I'm going to read the daily passage. And I'm going to think about it. Meditate on it. Try to memorize parts of it. Because I want it inside of me because I need it. I know. And you see, this is the thing people think when they read these passages about the law. And, oh, gosh, it's so boring. I'm never going to need that. No, you're going to need it. It's just oil you don't burn right now. But that information, I'm telling you, everything in the Bible has ministered to me in crucial moments that have saved my life. Even laws that I thought were silly. Just don't, don't worry. The time you're going to come, you will use it all. Just keep filling the jar. Just keep filling the jar. Keep seeking the Lord. Because the bottom line is we all will be tested. Number five, number six. Each is responsible. 
with their own future. And finally, number seven, the unwise will become the unknown. But I will say this about all of you in this room. I believe you are not the unwise. I believe you're the wise. I'll speak that over you. You are the wise virgins. You are the ones that are acquiring oil. Why? Why would you say that, Stephen? Because you're here. You're here in this room right now. There's a lot more fun to be had than what can be had in this room. If fun is what you need. Just fun is what you want. But fun doesn't give you oil. Church often is a discipline. There are churches built on the idea of it being fun and they have a lot of pageantry and it's beautiful and it's pretty. Also in there, their messages are simplified. You're not always challenged. But oil comes from that challenge of being touched by God. And that's what we're seeking. That's what we want. We want everybody to be filled with oil and have enough to last through the night. Amen. Thank you for listening to Antioch Center for the Nations. If you would like to support our efforts, please consider making a donation at www.antiochchurch.sg. Thank you.